Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. There is. I'll now, I'll now restart for our, our audience at home. <laughs> Um, so a thumbnail sketch of what I intend to present, uh, there is a kind of criteriological difference between philosophy and theology. Criteriology just means like, what do we count as counting? <laughs> and sometimes we don't do the work of explaining how they're related or what the difference between them is, kind of distinguishing so as to unite. So I thought that I would um, spend some time kind of navigating that gap and uh, in kind of by accident, as it were, or it's intended by me, but by accident in terms of the subject matter itself, I thought that it could offer us some resources for bridging the criteriological difference between, you know, the kind of modern sciences and philosophy. And I want to focus on the notion of testimony. Um, I think that sometimes we reserve testimony for specific settings or specific contexts, but I think that the testimony is shot through all of our experience and our scientific endeavors. Science there used analogically to cover the different things that we've been talking about over the course of the past few days. So um, I thought that I would just focus by way of introduction on, on the five ways, specifically on the fourth way, and then I'm going to go through distinctions of like ways that we have access to reality, and then I'll return to the fourth way at the end by way of summation. Uh, but for me, the most interesting thing will come about 29 to 30 minutes from now when we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about faith. Uh, so we'll, we'll use that as a kind of point of arrival, but then employ those principles uh, garnered in that conversation to re-engage the question of the, the existence of God. So the five ways provide a peculiar case for uh, certainty in truth. Um, so they pertain to what St. Thomas Aquinas would call the preambles of the faith. Maybe you've heard the Latin words used, preamble of fidei. Uh, so they are demonstrable by reason. All right, it's the type of thing that we can prove or lead one to depending on how you interpret the word via. Um, but St. Thomas will admit that, that these things uh, can only be known by a few, and that after a long time, and with the admixture of many errors. Okay, so it, it places demands upon the reasoner, places demands upon the person engaged in this type of discourse. And on the basis of this observation, he'll say at the beginning of the Summa Theologiae uh, that this is the reason for which there need be a doctrine further than the philosophical disciplines. And here he has in mind, you know, natural philosophy and metaphysics. Some people read this and they'll say like, oh yeah, faith discourse is just a bailout, you know, for the weak and the stupid. Um, but, but that's not the case because he's actually saying that these are grounds for a higher science. All right. And, and a science is still going to place demands upon the reasoner, upon the individual. Uh, you know, it's going to place a certain claim, and that's going to engage us, right? So we, we still have to grapple with the question of our access to reality and the question with our certainty and the basis thereof. So turning then to the fourth way, the fourth way is strange. <laughs> Many people will acknowledge that the fourth way is strange, and in part that might be because of its provenance. Uh, so uh, those who are accustomed to read St. Thomas Aquinas are more accustomed to the Aristotelian dimensions of his thought. Um, but, but the fourth way is typically described as more platonic or neoplatonic. Um, some people will say that it's the philosopher's proof. Uh, you set aside 
all those considerations which are more uh, pedagogical. You know, St. Thomas tries to take you by the hand and lead you into the reality. And the fourth way, he's like, let's go, boys. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, but, but certainly I, I would say that it's foreign to modern scientific sensibilities, um, if not for reasons aforementioned, then for the reason of its mention of fire, uh, some scientists will look at that and be like, what a howler, um, and then they'll never pay it more mind. Um, so I think that th th this approach is, is a little less, maybe intuitive is a word that we could use, than the appeal to motion or the appeal to causality, the appeal to contingency, and even, uh, perhaps even, the appeal to teleology. Um, so while it is foreign, I think that we can profit from the foreignness in that we incur less of a risk of unintentional you know, semantic elision. Um, I've heard from uh, you know, a scientist or two that uh, it can be confusing when a philosopher kind of swaggers up to the microphone and just uses the word substance. Um, or matter, <laughs> and you're like, oh my gosh, what does that even mean? Um, so I think using the fourth way is like welcoming somebody to the table who is not like us. It's like reading 19th century Russian literature. You're like, do they? I mean, are these human beings? You know, it's like it's so wild, but it it will cause us to engage with it. I think in a way that will risk less uh, a certain ambiguity. So I'm going to look with an eye, of course, towards uncertainty and confidence and truth. And, and part of my interest in the subject comes from a principle which is at the heart of the fourth way, which is sometimes referred to as maxime tale, like maximally such. And I came across it in my study of Christology, and St. Thomas uses the principle twice in the Christological treatise of the Summa Theologiae, one to describe the efficacy of the grace of God as it courses through the mystical body, and the other is to describe the causality of the resurrection, which is wild. <laughs> um, so I... I spent a long time looking into the radiant brilliance of this principle as deployed in St. Thomas Christology, and I'm not sure whether I left blind or illumined, um, but certainly taken with it. So in uh, Summa Theologiae Primum Pars Question 2, Article 3, which is the famous five ways, we can read then uh, the fourth way. The fourth way is taken from the grades, ex gradibus, which are found among things. For there is found in things something more and less good and true and noble, and likewise with other such properties but more and less are said of diverse properties according as they approach diversely to something which is maximally. And when, as when, the hotter a thing is, the more it approaches the maximally hot thing. Therefore, there is something that is truest and best and noblest, and consequently, maximally being. For those things which are maximally true are maximally beings, as is said in Book Two of the Metaphysics. But what is called maximally such in some genus is the cause of all things which are of that genus, as fire, which is maximally hot, is the cause of all hot things, as is said in the same book. Therefore, there is something which is the cause of being and of goodness, of, and of whatever perfection for all beings, and this we call God. Okay. So... Let's address some, some worries of a 21st century reader. Uh, we'll just address them, and we're going to move on, and then we'll return to them at the end. So first, uh, gradation. It's a bit worrisome. What exactly is being observed Okay, when we observe gradation? Second, um, true, good, and noble are the properties which St. Thomas enumerates in this proof. Uh, are those rigorously objective things or standards? Uh, it seems like... They very well could be relative, or they very well could be socially and culturally mediated. 
Uh, next, this notion of the maximal expression of a property. Uh, sure, you know, I imagine in the sciences, you know, like one deals with certain maxima, uh, but typically, or in, in certain sciences, they're posited to kind of cover the phenomenon, uh, but they're not necessarily observed, or they might be approached, as we heard, asymptotically, uh, or they might be a limit case or an exception, like a thing observes a certain rule until such time as you get to the maximum, and then different rules apply. Uh, so maximal expression of a property, that's, that's somewhat troublesome, I suppose. Uh, and then the example of heat and fire, uh, which sounds oldie-timey at best. And, and then the notion of genus, okay, uh, that, like, what is it that unites or constitu constitutes them as a community, sharing something common? And then the notion of causality. <laughs> Holy smokes, this is tough. Um, <laughs> So, uh, you know, how do you establish priority and posteriority among similar instances? How do you correlate them? How thick is that correlation, et cetera? So those are just some observations, and we're going to move on now. Okay. So <laughs> the order of proceeding will be to clarify the modes of observation at work, specifically in philosophical discourse. And I'm just going uh, to list four modes of access. This is one way of schematizing reality. There are other ways of schematizing reality. Um, but I think that this is a helpful way. Um, and then we're going to just touch on the certainty born of those modes of observation. And my proposal is that certainty is a fruit of the strength of testimony. And I'm not going to rigorously define strength, but I'm going to like gesture towards what it might mean from a variety of directions. <laughs> um, and so when we get to the fourth mode of observation, that's when I will introduce the properly theological. So if you have seatbelts on your seats, you might consider buckling up. Um, seeing as you don't, you shan't. All right, so um, <laughs> first we'll do, we'll do sensory experience and then mediated sensory experience, all right? And then we'll do intellectual judgment and then mediated intellectual judgment, all right? So I'm focusing on different ways by which and then different forms through which. So sense, sensory experience. Uh, so you can refer to this, you know, in the philosophical tradition in a variety of ways. St. Thomas will favor uh, sense cognition or sense knowledge. In this, you, you've heard this described now uh, already, but this, this notion that there's a sensible species, all right, and that the sensible species is impressed upon the sense, the organ, and then by virtue of the interior senses, that, that sensible experience, as it were, is you know, kind of collated, imagined, remembered, employed, right, all of which unfolds at the sense level. In this case, I think what we observe is that the, the phenomenon testifies to itself, okay? Or, or it simply testifies. And I recognize that this would be the, the largest analogical stretch of the word testimony, insofar as we typically envision it or we imagine it as something interpersonal. Right? But I think that there's a kind of projection. Right? There's a kind of, as it were, testimony which is at stake. And this is the root of what we might call empirical certitude. I realize words like empirical or inductive, you know, they're fraught and they mean a variety of things, but I'm using empirical here, just taken from the Greek word for experience. So we may just as well say experiential certitude, except that I want to broaden the category of experience to embrace more. So I'm just saying empirical in that sense. Now, St. Thomas uh, admits in this instance the possibility of error, okay? And we've heard in other contexts that there's, there's no failure in perception of a proper sensible. 
we won't tarry too much over what that entails. But basically, there's a proper sensible to each of the senses, and it doesn't err with respect to that proper sensible, though it may err with respect to common sensibles or accidental things attendant upon that experience. Right? But you, you, can't, you can't err with respect to the very thing for which the organ is intended. All right? There's a kind of correspondence there. There's a kind of calibration, as it were, to this testimony. The sense is dialed in to the thing which it was created to detect. Um, so there's no failure in perception of a proper sensible, but failure may arise for other reasons. So St. Thomas will use the instance of a feverish patient who tastes everything as bitter. You know, there's a physical explanation for this, which might have something to do with swelling or inflammation, certain changes in protein production. Um, but, but his basic notion is that when the receptor itself is transposed into a false register, then it's going to receive that testimony in the mode of the receiver. Um, there are also you know, places in which he acknowledged, in dependence upon you know, his forebears, that there can be a, like a problem with the medium, as it were, through which sense knowledge is garnered or gathered. So the example of the bent ore is a classic one. Um, you look into the water and you see the trajectory of the ore and it looks as if it's bent at this you know, inflection point where it enters the water. So the water being, you know, the interplay of like light and water, which acts as a prism. And then I'm adding this one. Uh, this is somewhat imaginative, but also the failure of nature. So nature, we know, obtains always or for the most part. All right. So there are certain exceptions in nature. Uh, where I went to school, Franciscan University of Steubenville, there was a deer uh, on campus who only had three legs. Um, and it was, you know, often seen by students. But, you know, if you kind of are driving down University Boulevard and you look and you see a deer, if someone were to interrogate me about my experience prior to my having been introduced to the fact that there's a three-legged deer on campus, and if that person were to say, like, you saw a deer? And I'd say, yeah, I saw that deer. And they'd say, how many legs did it have? I'd be like, four, you know, I think. Because I'm anticipating a certain experience of nature that it obtained always and for the most part, and so I kind of, I look for what I expect to see, and that's already the introduction of a kind of cogitative power. But I just mean to say that failure can be introduced at the level of nature, but that's stretching the notion of failure which I've employed in the first two senses. So then, if we schematize these sources of error, there can be error of the subject, or error kind of which arises on the part of the subject, like a certain defect in the corporeal organ. There can be a, a source of error in the medium, uh, whereby like the sensible species itself is transposed. Uh, and then failure on the part of the object, insofar as it provides an occasion for an erroneous intellectual judgment. Okay, so I'm already judging at this point, because I'm making a judgment that the sensible species, which is furnished by the three-legged deer, ought to conform to a certain standard of deer. Um, so, I just want to add here a, a, just a small point taken from faith discourse. I think that we can also say that there's a kind of error introduced globally into the experience by virtue of the fact that we are fallen and this might seem like a bridge too far. The reason I introduce it is because St. Thomas will, will, will describe this phenomenon in the Christological treatise of the Summa Theologiae, where he talks about the acuity of Christ's pain on the cross. And he gives a variety of reasons for which it is so acute, but one, he says, is the sensitivity of his body, because here is one who has not suffered sin. So there's a way in which sin dulls us, not only intellectually, but corporeally. So, in the treatise on faith, St. Thomas will talk about how intellectually we suffer a kind of dullness of mind and hardness of heart as a result of unbelief. Uh, so, too, there's a kind of resonance in our bodies. 
whereby we, we become less able or less apt sensors. So that's hard, you know, that's hard to schematize in the same way, but I think it's something to which we need to be attentive. Just that it's not as good as it might have been. Well, we can stand to hope that it will be yet better still at the end of the age. Okay, so um, here we have you know, certain standards then for certainty. We have to account for pertinent factors, whether or not I'm feverish. Uh, we need to adjust for intervening circumstances, whether you know, I'm, I'm seeing an ore through the prism of water or whether I'm wearing rose-colored glasses, which I've never been accused of wearing, um, or whether we're attending to the, the thing itself, really attending to the thing itself, because they're kind of instantaneity or a kind of urgency, as it were, to sense experience, which can't be you know, deflected from. So an acuity of observation. And I think that this is a point at which um, we, can, we can make a connection back to Dr. DeHaan's talk, where he was saying there's no kind of view from nowhere. And, and McIntyre is very good at just kind of sounding the death knell. He's like, the Enlightenment project has failed. The Enlightenment, you know, everyone comes out into the city square. They're like, what's going on? He's like, it's failed. They're like, okay. Um, but but it's, it's a great point because it's not for us to say, oh, I need to um, fix all of these things because you're not going to fix all these things. But we do need to account for them, right? It's like um, for a young person, for instance, to try to grow on the virtue of humility. Good luck, <laughs> right? Because it's kind of an old person's virtue. I don't say that in the spirit of exasperation and despair, but still, like, there's there's no sense in pretending to be humble when you know you're not, right? But you can account for the fact that you're not humble. You can be like, ah, yes, I'm overweeningly proud, and on account of that fact, I'm likely to talk too much. Um, so maybe I should rein it in, right? So that's that's a different kind of judgment, all right? So no view from nowhere, but we can be cognizant of the fact that our view is from somewhere and account for that somewhere. All right, so then the second uh, that I want to touch on is mediated sensory experience. So this would be like one step beyond sense cognition or sense knowledge. Uh, and we're introducing here kind of the augmentation or the precision of a, of a measuring tool or of an expert or privileged observer. There are other ways in which we could... Um, you know, there are other things that could be described in this way as mediated sensory experience, but I'm just focusing on, on tools or expert privileged observers. So the tool kind of augments or grants access to the reality's testimony, uh, whereas the expert or privileged observer mediates and even begins to interpret the reality's testimony. So there's a sense in which the expert or privileged observer testifies as well, and we've already touched on this in a variety of talks and the conversations that have followed therefrom. Uh, either way, and this is kind of the key point of this, there is already intellectual judgments going on at every turn. So when we're talking about mediated sensory experience, we are, we are making intellectual judgments, whether we acknowledge it or not. Um, and I think that one way in which you could describe this is there's a kind of relationship established between the observer and the object, but that included in that relationship is the tool in a certain sense, but more so the expert or privileged observer. So it's, it's more than just the kind of unmediated access which we might pretend to have, pretend in the sense of claim. So St. Thomas admits the possibility of error in things of this sort as well. So those already mentioned still obtain. But now we have further subjects and further media. Okay, so further subjects, insofar there's an expert privileged observer in the work, and there's further media insofar as he is perceiving, and then we are in relation to him, and that gap, as it were, if we can speak of gap in modern terms, or I would just simply say that relationship needs to be accounted for. 
So by, yeah, by introducing a further subject and a further medium, this interpersonal dimension of the exchange comes to light. So there are, this is ambivalent, and I wanna, I wanna focus on this for just a brief moment, that there's a kind of ambivalence here because I think some of us uh, who come from whatever, a background which might uh, betray a certain skepticism would say, ah yes, we have further occasion for false judgment. But <laughs> I think we also have potentially further occasion for true judgment. Right? And I think the ambivalence of that is important. And I think the interpersonal dimension is able to account for it. And I think the testimony helps us to, helps us to lay hold of it with some facility. Uh, albeit it's, it's difficult to grasp, it's, it's a bit slippery. Um, so there, there can be further occasion here for true judgment insofar as we can partake of a kind of participated acuity. Um, so, you know, you might have good eyesight, but your friend might have better eyesight still. Uh, one of my best friends, Father Bonaventure Chapman, he is colorblind. So at night, it's very difficult for him to drive. I mean, he drives, he, he carries it off well. Uh, but he has difficulty distinguishing between red lights and street lights. You can see how this is complicating things. <laughs> uh, right, so, so I'm there, and I, I sometimes testify to the reality which is before my non-colorblind eyes for the sake of his sorrowful passion and for those on the streets at the appropriate hour. Um, right, so it, it can be a further occasion for true judgment insofar as perhaps we, we partake of a participated acuity. Also, there's something we said for mathematical modeling and it's artistry. And I think artistry here is a helpful sense of, of testimony because I think the artist, whether we're talking about the visual arts or you know, literature, poetry, architecture, whatever it is, the artist has a vision and the artist communicates that vision. But there's, a, there's an act of transposition which goes on. So this particular individual, Fyodor Dostoevsky, may have had a profound experience. He did have a profound experience when he was brought to the point of almost being executed, and then he was pardoned, and he experienced like all the terror of the ponderous mercy of God, and then he transposed that experience and communicated in literature. And so we can share in something of that. But it's through a particularistic medium. It's through the particular words and the particular images that he deploys. So it seems, you know, you'd want to say it's limited, and as a result of which, it introduces further occasion for erroneous judgment. But in its very limitation, it reflects his human condition, and it also builds a bridge to ours. I just want to keep highlighting this, this interpersonal dimension. So mathematical modeling can be a kind of artistry in a certain sense, insofar as one is able to project a reality according to a certain vision thereof, whereby the other is invited into that reality, to a kind of communion in that reality. Um, so those would just be some, some things to say on that score. Uh, again, there are certain standards here of certainty, uh, the ones that we mentioned with respect to unmediated sensory experience, but now we have all of this further considerations regarding the rigor of communication. So first point is to simply say that distance and abstraction do not necessarily correlate to heightened uncertainty. Okay. Such thing as a kind of mediated certainty attended upon mediate experience is real. And then the second point is that intellectual judgment has already entered the mix. Intellectual judgment has already intellect and entered the mix. So then we can uh, apply these insights to intellectual judgment properly so-called. So first, first of the remaining two, I should say, third. <laughs> intellectual judgment. Here, the reality testifies. The reality testifies, or the realities testify insofar as our experience is temporal, and so we're going to be comparing things as we go along the way. So there's 
a similarity between the sensible species and the intelligible species. So we cannot err with respect to the sensible species, the proper sensible species. So too we cannot err with respect to like simple apprehension or with respect to you know, simple definitions. And we'll get into that more. Um, but basically, in the reasoning process, which you have heard described at various points, we're abstracting from an instance or series of instances. We're formulating judgments on the basis of those abstractions. And then we're reasoning upon those things, upon the coherence of those things. And yeah, it's in this sense that we might say, and I'm uncomfortable saying it, but I think we might say that the mind testifies too. Um, and I mean it in the sense that not in a kind of like late 18th, early 19th century, that it's all in the mind, but in the sense that the mind has a kind of light and that the light is a participation in the divine light, which we'll get to, but that the light is something through which, but also something which. And St. Thomas will make this distinction when he talks about the divine ideas and he makes a distinction between the intelligible species, which is through which, and then the concept, which is which. Uh, but I think here that there's, there's something to be said for the fact that our mind kind of testifies to us without, you know, uh, cutting our experience from reality or, or imprisoning us in our own mind. But there is a kind of testimony which the mind undertakes um, that we can be trusted. <laughs> uh, so we, we can maybe inquire further into that in the question and answer session because that, that idea is inchoate. And this affords uh, a metaphysical certitude, uh, so whereby we know that such is the nature of the thing to which we can have access, such is the corollary of the pertinent realities. We can know that, and, and Father Ambrose described that in his description of demonstration. St. Thomas admits here, again, the possibility of error, and he does it speaking to, to speculative intellect, and he does it speaking to practical intellect. The, the examples in practical intellect are very evocative, and sometimes they give us a greater sense of the thing, uh, but he gives a variety of examples which pertain to our exercise of the speculative intellect. For those not familiar with the distinction, uh, the speculative intellect is the exercise of the intellect. Uh, it's like knowing for knowing's sake, whereas the practical intellect is knowing for doing's sake. So the pertinent virtues on the one side would be wisdom and understanding and knowledge, and the pertinent virtues on the other side would be like prudence and art. And by art, St. Thomas means craftsmanship, I mean artistry in the sense of artistry that we currently understand by artistry, but also craftsmanship, making things. Uh, so St. Thomas here admits the possibility of error as was the case with the proper sensible, so too there's no failure in apprehension, in simple apprehension, or in simple definitions. And here he's you know, very much indebted to Aristotle. Uh, the intellect is, is always true. <laughs> but there might be other sources of error. So failures in sense knowledge will eventuate in failures in intellectual judgment. As I made mention of, you know, that there's a three-legged deer, but I anticipate the sight of a four-legged deer, if I anticipate any sight at all. Um, and so I've introduced error by virtue of a judgment, but the sensible experience is in part to blame. Uh, but then there can be also failure in knowledge of the principles. Here, I mean principles in the sense of like secondary or tertiary principles, because St. Thomas doesn't think that we can fail with respect to our knowledge of first principles, like the principle of non-contradiction or the principle of identity, things like that. Although, here we are in the 21st century. <laughs> On an extended goat rodeo, first principle denial. Um, it's like, holy smokes, am I at a rodeo? Oh, is that a goat? It's like, <laughs> yeah, how to account for our present experience? Who knows? Okay, um, so we, we cannot err with respect to second or tertiary, <laughs> secondary or tertiary principles, but, uh, Gregory. We cannot err with respect to primary principles, but we can with respect to secondary or tertiary principles. 
Um, and we can also err with respect to like the things arranged about liquidity. Uh, so we can compose improperly, or we can perceive composition improperly. Um, and St. Thomas gives some cool examples thereof. We can also fail with respect to demonstration of the conclusions, whether in reasoning or in comprehending the reasoning. And here we're just dealing with the fact that we as human beings are discursive beasts and that we need to navigate discursion well, and there are pertinent virtues you know, for proper discursion, but that we can not act out of those virtues, or we can defect from them, or we can even be vicious in our reasoning. Um, so an example that St. Thomas gives is like a false application of a definition or an incompatible composition. Uh, so the intellect can fail in judging that a thing is fitting according to one condition, which turns out not to be fitting according to another condition. And an example that he gives is a partial diagnosis. So the doctor might see the symptoms, make a diagnosis, but not having accounted for a symptom which he didn't detect, or symptoms which weren't manifesting, he makes a false diagnosis, and as a result of which, doesn't help the patient in the way that he could have. So here, we see it's kind of a matter of taking into account, a matter of attending to the pertinent things. Um, the examples that St. Thomas gives in the practical order are wild, uh, but you can read more in the pertinent sections of his writings that touch on prudence. Uh, here I'll talk about passion, and I'll talk about habit, and things of such like. So again, we have certain standards of certainty. <laughs> um, there's no failure with respect to the major, because that's furnished by understanding, or intellectus, which is infallible. Uh, but there can be failure with respect to the minor, there can be failure with respect to the conclusion at the level of ratio, ratio scenario. So there's that. Fourth and final is mediated intellectual judgment. So this then, in a way comparable to how mediated sensory judgment is one step beyond sensory judgment. So to mediated intellectual judgment seems to be one step beyond intellectual cognition or intellectual knowledge. And what we're dealing with here is something comparable, I would suggest. Um, now I'm gonna take the, the tool or um, the measurement kind of out of the consideration, yeah, it was tool, uh, and just focus on expert or privileged observers. So this can help us at the level of augmentation of or clarification of this acuity which I have described or the time that it takes or the sifting of error by an expert or privileged reasoner um, and you'll notice that that corresponds to St. Thomas's description of the need for a higher science only by a few over a long period of time with the admixture of errors but in our participation or in our kind of reception of the mediated intellectual judgment we can transcend some of those difficulties or we can um, attenuate some of the complications that arise because of them. So here, in this case, the reality testifies through an expert or privileged reasoner who himself testifies. And I think that we want to talk about it as a kind of instrumental testimony. There's a real sub, yeah, kind of sublimity of the realities sharing in the testimony of the privileged observer, such that he acts in and through it. So it's not just you have this thing and you have this thing and we're triangulating because we're too lazy or busy or otherwise silly to get at the thing itself. No, there's something that's contributed by the instrument. And it's, you know, so there's, there's something more in a certain sense. Um, so St. Thomas will make the distinction between those things which are evident to the wise and then those things which are evident to all. Uh, and I, I think here that we have an example of how that kind of cashes out to speak in crass terms. But, but this, you know, touches upon the whole question of teaching, right? Like aided discovery. And, and this is a big question in the philosophical tradition, or it's you know a big question 
with St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas and their students and those who are engaging with them on the point, what does it mean to teach? It's not to introduce something alien or foreign. In a certain sense, it's to induce, right? We call it education for a reason. It's to call forth. Um, and so it's on this basis that, that it affords a mediated metaphysical servitude. And I would suggest to you again that ambivalence that we touched upon with mediated sensory experience. Sometimes our mind goes, oh, this will be further occasion for false judgment, okay? But, but it's ambivalent. Again, it's ambivalent. So I think that this might be further occasion for false judgment, but it also could be further occasion for greater intimacy with the things at stake. And I think that the instrumentality, as St. Thomas describes it, uh, gets at some of that intimacy. Um, so, Gregory, where are you? Excellent question. Um, so uh, here, in this instance, um, the subject always has to furnish a judgment. Um, so in order for the thing to qualify as knowledge or science, uh, it has to be judged. Because otherwise it remains at the level of faith, uh, or it remains at the level of interesting opinion of someone else. And you know, Father Ambrose touched on this as well. So I think that, yeah, when we, when we start talking about this, you see that we're on the doorstep of faith, like theological faith, or infused faith. Uh, because, but we're talking about it according to a paradigm, which still falls within the ambit of reason. But we've already begun to gesture in the direction of faith. So let me just say a couple more words about the possibility of error, and then we'll just go to faith. And then we'll conclude with just a, a brief re revisitation of the fourth way. So St. Thomas admits the possibility of error, uh, which would have been the same of those, the same as those which have gone before, plus uh, comparable considerations, uh, which would we we would kind of like already thought about when it comes to mediated sensory experience. So I'm just going to kind of push on a little bit. Uh, but but here we see something novel is that there's a there's a push from faith to knowledge. There's a push from faith to knowledge because of the fact that a, ju a judgment needs to be rendered by you know, the thinking subject. Uh, because it's not sufficient to stay at the level of faith if the educatory process is to kind of come to full term. I'm talking about the level of reason here, or what falls within the ambit of reason unaided by faith. But anticipating certain claims, this is also true of theological faith. Theological faith is imperfect because it's the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. And as a result of which, there is a kind of dynamism at work within faith itself, which tends to vision. And so, you know, we hear it said that faith will pass away and hope will pass away. For you have no need of faith when you behold. You have no need of hope when you possess. Love will abide, because love is the very substance of Christian charity. But these things will pass away in a similar way that sacraments will pass away, because you don't need signs when you are immersed in realities. So, so there's a kind of pushing beyond faith, and it's seeking to secure our judgment on the other side of something more real. Uh, so, okay, certain standards of certainty, uh, same as those which have gone before, plus comparable considerations to those introduced with mediated sensory experience. I grow weary with my own exhaustive dialectic, so I push on. <laughs> so then, brief excursus on faith discourse. There's a difference between testimony to things accessible to reason and testimony to things which fall beyond the ambit of reason. Now, when I say beyond the ambit of reason, I mean beyond all but the keenest of reasoners, and that would be like the preambles of the faith, or beyond the reason entirely, and that would be mysteries in the strict sense. So when we're talking about faith discourse, 
we're not just talking about, man, the smile breaks out on my face because I'm already thinking about the things we're going to talk about, and I get excited. Okay, so, so I go, oh, yeah, though I walk through the valley of philosophy, I fear no evil. The theology is almost before me. Um, so we're not just talking about an expert witness, as if we were appealing to one who accidentally has access to the things of heaven. It's like, this guy over here, he stumbled into the heavenly courts. What do you have to say about it? You know, it's like, no, that's not, that's not what we're talking about. All right? We're talking about revealed principles, and when St. Thomas says revealed principles, he means scientia de beatorum. So like the knowledge of God and of the blessed. And I think whenever you're dealing with a genitive in St. Thomas Aquinas, you got to ask yourself, objective or subjective, okay? So like, is it God's knowledge, like God's very knowledge, or is it the knowledge of God as an object? And the answer is both, okay? So we're talking about God's knowledge of himself, that the theologian can, and not just the theologian, like, in this sense, everyone's a theologian who has faith. So the Christian, with faith, can know God with his own knowledge of himself. So this entails some understanding of realities which are otherwise incomprehensible. Not incomprehensible in the sense of too dark or too obscure, but too brilliant, too radiant. And a kind of intimacy with them. So here, the, the testimony to these realities is furnished in peculiar fashion. And we, we talk about it in terms of a kind of participation, a kind of communion in the very goods which are conferred thereby. So St. Thomas will talk about the image of God in these terms. We are made to the image of God, ad imaginum Dei, which denotes a kind of dynamism to the image. So it's, it's a static phenomenon in a certain sense, but more so true that it's a dynamic phenomenon. And so when you read the tradition, uh, they'll testify to the fact that the image of God is bound up largely with our capacities which transcend corporeal organs, right, with our intellect and with our will, they themselves being patterned on the immaterial God, uh, who is himself a knower and a lover. But then beyond that, we are made capacious of receiving knowledge of God and love of God, and of knowing God and of loving God with his own knowledge and love of himself, which has a kind of assimilative tendency. So it's not knowing and loving at a distance, like, you know, you might prayerfully consider knowing and loving God if it suits you. No, it's like, it draws with a kind of gravity. Um, so my weight is my love, says Augustine. And, and so you know, like the, the tradition will speak about the difference between the image of representation, whereby we represent God as capacious, and then the image of conformity, whereby we are drawn into God, assimilated to God, conformed to God. And St. Thomas has a cool analogy whereby he goes through the image of creation, to have a, an intellect, to have a will, the image of recreation, whereby grace begins to heal and to grow the exercise of our intellect and will, the operation of it, albeit kind of uh, by fits and starts here below, but then ultimately the image of similitude or of likeness in heaven, where we will be made perfectly that for which we are intended. So then certainty here is had on the basis of divine truth. <sighs> okay, <laughs> so St. <laughs> Thomas has a question in the Summa Theologia, which I think upsets many people when they read it. Uh, so this is for those of you who would like to read it afterwards. It's Secunda Secunda, question four, article eight, and it's on the certainty of faith and how the certainty of faith transcends the certainty of knowledge or goes beyond the certainty of knowledge, specifically of the intellectual virtues. So he's talking about knowledge and wisdom and understanding. And St. Thomas will admit the sources of uncertainty here. He'll say the things of faith are beyond the power of reason. So in a certain sense, we're kind of lost before them or we're kind of bemused before them. St. John Damascene, quoting St. Gregory of Nazianza, says that God is an infinite ocean of substance. And, you know, in that infinite ocean of substance, we feel ourselves at times 
to be drowning. <laughs> so we're, we're less competent when it comes to the appropriation of these truths. All right? But, he says, the grounds for certainty are stronger still. And he speaks in terms of certainty, of certitudo. And he gives two main reasons for which. One, the object. That we're dealing with things which are thicker. We're dealing with eternal things. So he says, this is just beyond the consideration of prudence and of art, because those deal with contingent matters. Contingent matters may as well pass out, pass out of existence, that is, on account of the fact that they could be otherwise, or they could be not. Um, so there's something about these realities which transcends, which goes beyond the things that we're ordinarily accustomed to reason upon. And then the more interesting reason that, he's, that he furnishes us with comes at the level of cause or causality. So he says, the cause of the certainty of faith, he's speaking specifically of the certainty of faith, is the divine truth or veracity. And here, this is the point of having led into this consideration with a treatment of testimony. Because the word that he uses is initiator, so faith leans on, or rests on, or is supported by, and he uses the dative, which is a kind of interpersonal case. You know, it's like to and from. It just gets you involved with the other. So faith leans on, or rests on, or is supported by the divine truth. Whereas the intellectual virtues, he says, rest on, lean on, depend upon human reason. So we're talking about something here that's beyond the testimony which furnishes us the certainty of wisdom, of understanding, and of knowledge, because they have human reason for the cause of their certainty. So not only is there a metaphysical thickness to the objects, but there's a metaphysical thickness to the testator, and the reason for which is operative at the causal level. So you know in St. Thomas Aquinas, he uses truth in two senses. We heard yesterday about this idea of adequatio mentis et rei, uh, so like that our mind need be conformed to the reality, but there's a prior sense of truth that the reality need be conformed to the divine mind. Right, so here, in the sublunary, <laughs> here on this earth, we are all being by participation. We are all being on loan. Now, when I say being on loan, I don't mean to say like we're going to wink out of existence on account of the fact that we are returnable to nothing and that God might forget us. So I don't mean to say that as an anxiety-inducing point. But just to stress the fact that we don't have our being by right, or that we have our being, as it were, as a gift. And so the basis right, of the certainty of faith leans on, depends upon, looks to the divine truth. So we're talking about a metaphysical claim, which is antecedent to a semantic claim, or a semiotic claim, or a phenomenological claim, or an epistemological claim. We're talking about the type of testimony which is furnished by a reality, which we are made capable of so that we can be assimilated to it, so that we can actually participate in it. We're meant to be drawn in. And so when we do that, and especially when you introduce considerations of instrumentality, because in the setting of the church, this comes by way of Christ and the sacred humanity, the church, wherein lies all the sacramental riches to be had. The sacraments, you know, like the testimony of the saints, the, the whatever, I mean, there's so many things. So all these instruments are deployed in the communication of a reality which is meant to assimilate us or conform us to. So in this sense, we're talking about a creative knowledge and a recreative knowledge, the divine truth, which makes things to be and to flourish, right? To, to be and to act, and when which draws them back into their source from whence they came. So the testimony here is the issue of the divine creative and recreative abundance, kind of like ebullience. Because when we think about creation, we can't account for it on its own terms. Like, why are we rather than not? I mean, God 
thought we might like it effectively. <laughs> right? He had a secret too good to keep, the secret of his divine abundance. So then this is going to require of us a judgment, uh, which judgment is transformative. And so like St. Augustine will define faith as cogitare cum ascensione, like to, to believe or to have faith is effectively to think with assent. Right? So a judgment need be rendered. But the, the judgment itself is furnished by God intimately, right? More interiorly to us than any other judgment that we have ever furnished. Because God, as the giver of our nature, is able to move within us in a way that's non-manipulative or non-controlling, but actually calls forth from us the response which we would have engendered had we had the means to do so. But we come before him as a beggar, and then he supplies it in turn. So, in this spirit then, <laughs> I will con conclude here briefly. Um, that when we get to this kind of deep, deep mystery of the initium fidei, which is glossed in the tradition in a variety of places, we're talking about the God as the interior cause of faith's ascent. And in speaking of it as interior, we're not talking about it as something as alien, as something visited from without, as something that represents a kind of act of violence or oppression or whatever it is, imposition. We're talking about something that calls forth from our very nature, what our nature is ordered to, and we can talk about questions of twofold beatitude at a later date, <laughs> right? So that, that we're actually ordered to at some level, which represents our flourishing and our perfection. So then, when we return to the fourth way, and I'll just kind of lapse into silence at this point, we, we approach it with an understanding of the realities mediated, right? Of the testimony whereby those realities are furnished, and ourselves kind of in like on the move, as it were, as reasoners, who are being healed and grown by grace. And this is a kind of gesture towards Christian philosophy. What does it mean to be a Christian philosopher? But there is one sense in which I think, this is why I introduced the point about Christ, his humanity, the sensitivity thereof. Like our humanity is being resensitized to reality. And part of that story is the relationship through which we receive the testimony to the reality by which we're saved and at the heart of which we find God. So... That was my hope in sharing with you, and uh, if you have any questions, I'm delighted to entertain <laughs> Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.